0: This is the word of God, beginning at Matthew 6, verse 1. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men, to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father, which seeth in secret himself, shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father which is in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them. For your Father which knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Thus far we read the inspired scriptures. The basis of Jesus' words in Matthew 6 and the rest of the Bible You look again at Lord's Day 51, focusing especially on the second half, which is the fifth petition. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, that is, be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood not to impute to us poor sinners our transgressions, nor that depravity which always cleaves to us, even as we feel this evidence of thy grace in us, that it is our firm resolution from the heart, to forgive our neighbor. Beloved in the Lord, though we've had two sermons already on the fifth petition, we haven't yet addressed the concluding clause of the fifth petition, as we forgive our debtors. And this second part of the fifth petition is too important to pass by. Indeed, it is important enough to have a whole sermon dedicated to its explanation. Jesus, in the second half of the fifth petition, establishes a very important connection between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiving of our neighbor. And this connection brings before us a crucial and necessary lesson for the Christian life. Indeed, a principle which ought to be rooted in our hearts and ought to be a part of our daily practice by the grace of God. It's a principle rooted in God's mercy. God has forgiven us our debts. God has given Christ to the death of the cross to pay for our sins To merit and obtain for us all blessings of salvation. And now we have a calling. To live out of his saving work for us. God's forgiveness of us. Means we must forgive one another. And our forgiveness of one another. Flows out of God's mercy and grace given to us. The lesson is that those who are forgiven by God ought to have hearts that are so softened by that unmerited grace of God that they are ready and eager to forgive the brother who sins against them and confesses that sin to them. Jesus connects. God's forgiveness of us to our forgiveness of the brother and connects them so closely that if these are out of harmony in our life, there is something dreadfully wrong. We must be able to say in the same breath, forgive us, Father, our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus highlights the importance of this for us in Matthew chapter 6. After Jesus delivers the Lord's Prayer, it's striking, is it not, that he singles out the fifth petition for further explanation. And this interesting fact ought to catch our attention. He delivers the Lord's Prayer, and then in verses 14 and 15, before he moves on to another subject, he immediately explains something about the fifth petition. And his focus is especially upon the second part of the fifth petition, as we forgive our debtors. Jesus himself recognizes there's going to be questions about this. He needs to explain this. He needs to impress upon us the seriousness of it. Because Jesus knows our nature. And knows that this second part of the fifth petition is really hard on our sinful flesh. We want God's forgiveness, but we would like to have it. And not have to forgive our debtors. So easily we pray the first part. Yet forget, minimize, or neglect the second part. And so in Matthew 6 verses 14 and 15. We're going to see later on in the sermon. How Jesus in immediately expounding upon the fifth petition. Emphasizes to us the importance and seriousness of this. In our lives as his people. We must forgive our debtors. Because God has forgiven us. So much. So much. So the purpose of the sermon this morning. Is to conclude our in-depth study. Of the fifth petition and to explain this second part in light of Jesus' own explanation of it, and then finally to apply this truth to us. The last part of the fifth petition is meant to be put into practice. It is not enough that we have a correct intellectual understanding of the doctrine that Jesus delivers here, but that doctrine is given to us to live out. And so to that end, we're going to consider the second half of the fifth petition under the theme, As we forgive our debtors. First we're going to look at the meaning of it. Secondly the seriousness of it. And finally the practice of it. Jesus teaches us to pray. Forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors. What does that second part mean? We're going to walk through each of the words. And unpack What it means. And let's start with the last couple words. Our debtors. Just as Jesus taught something to us when he said, Forgive us our debts, he taught us that we have debts. So, too, in the second part of the petition, Jesus teaches us that we have debtors. We have debtors. And what this means is that there are people who sin against us. And by that sin, they become our debtors. And we sin against other people. And become their debtors. Jesus states this. As a given fact. And that teaches us something. This is an inescapable reality in the body of Christ. We must not excuse sin in the church. We must not minimize sin. But we must also not be shocked by it. It's going to happen. Because every member of the body of Christ is a sinner who confesses as the first part of the Lord's day says that we are poor sinners who transgress God's law, who always have this depravity clinging to us. There is going to be sin in the church. Brothers and sisters are going to sin against each other. We are debtors to one another and we have debtors. Jesus would have us apply all that we've learned about sin. Now to our relationships with one another. We sin against each other. We focused up to this point on how sin is against God. Sin incurs guilt with God. It's a liability to suffer punishment. There's an obligation to pay. Sin offends the most high majesty of God. It displeases Him. And that's the seriousness of sin. But we also sin against each other. We looked at Psalm 51 verse 4. In a previous sermon, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That's first. All sin is first of all against God and therein lies its greatest seriousness. We read the law earlier in the service and the two great commandments are, Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind and strength and love thy neighbor as thyself. When we violate the second great commandment and fail to love the neighbor as ourself, that is still, first of all, a sin against God, who calls us to love the neighbor. And our love for the neighbor is an expression of love towards God. Nonetheless, that doesn't take away from the fact that sins against the second table of the law, failure to love the neighbor as God commands, is a sin against the neighbor too, that offends and hurts the neighbor that incurs a certain guilt with the neighbor, so that Jesus says, When you sin against someone, you become a debtor. And when someone sins against you, they're your debtor. Not that we then have a right to punish our neighbor who sins against us. That right belongs to God alone. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But in this sense, when we've done wrong, we're responsible to remove the offense of that wrong. By confessing sin and correcting it and reconciling with our brother. And when wrong has been done done to us. We are also responsible to address it in the biblical way. To remove that offense. And that is what the second half of the fifth petition is getting at. Sin is debt. And debt is misery. The greatest misery is that sin separated us from God and exposed us to his wrath and the just penalty of his law which is eternal death. But the debt of sin against each other also brings misery too. When we sin against one another, when we fail to resolve sin's offense against one another properly according to the word of God, we experience that misery in our relationships in the body of Christ or with the neighbor. Sin separates us from one another. It disrupts fellowship. It distances us. It drives a wedge between people. And when that wedge is left there, and wedges don't get up and go away themselves, when that wedge is left there, it sinks deeper into the soil of our relationships, pressing us farther apart. Sin against each other is like a corrosive acid the longer it's left there, it eats away at the cords that bind people together in the body of Christ. When we think about life circumstances, that fits with our experience, doesn't it? In marriage, perhaps husband, wife, there's a grievance between the two of you, something that happened, a sin, that one of you committed against the other, and then the other responded sinfully, and it's not addressed. You shrug it off when you really shouldn't because that grievance is still there, and perhaps it happens again, and it festers and grows, and resentment begins to rise in the heart, and there's that wedge in the middle of your home. Or it happens in the congregation. For example, two sisters disagree over something and there's an unkind word spoken and they depart from one another with the matter unresolved. It's left hanging and a coldness develops between them. They avoid each other in the back of church and as time passes, they don't want to address it because it feels too awkward now. And so, what happens then? is that two daughters of the King that Christ has joined together in Christian fellowship allow themselves to be put asunder by unresolved sin. Jesus, in the fifth petition, is teaching us a crucially important lesson. And his crucially important lesson is, that must not be among God's people. And the reason it must not be, is God forgives your sins. God forgives your massive debts. And the fruit of that, and the effect of that, and the outflow of that ought and must be the forgiveness of one another. And so now we move to the first words of the second part of the fifth petition, as we forgive our debtors. Jesus here instructs us how to deal with sin, how to deal with our debtors, how to deal with the fact that I am a debtor to another person in the body of Christ. How do we deal with sin? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Striving for forgiveness. The word as is crucial. Here, as we forgive our debtors. With that word, as, Jesus is establishing the closest connection between God's forgiveness of our debts and our forgiving of the debtors who have sinned against us. And it is so close a connection that we cannot and may not try to pull these two apart. We've already seen in the first couple of sermons on this petition, that God forgives our sins freely, graciously, for the sake of the blood of Jesus Christ. God, in fathomless mercy, forgives unworthy debtors such as you and I are. Unworthy debtors who have not earned it. Who can do nothing to earn it. But who only daily increase our debt. And yet God in mercy Has given his son Jesus Christ. Who laid down his life as the atonement for sin. And that atonement paid our debt. Canceled that debt. That atonement satisfied the demands of God's justice. And that atonement merited for us all spiritual blessings. Among which is the forgiveness of our sins. And that forgiveness of our sins, God daily applies to us through the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit. God has done that for us. And now that mercy of God in Jesus Christ, that mercy of God must bear fruit in us. Forgiveness is fruitful. God's forgiveness is fruitful. And the fruit of God's mercy and forgiveness is that we become merciful and a forgiving people, willing to forgive, ready to forgive, eager to strive to forgive one another. Those who have tasted God's mercy, who know themselves to be the unworthy debtors that they are, who have transgressed the law of God and have such depravity cleaving to them, those who know that mercy will, as the catechism calls our attention to, will have a firm resolution. That is, a deep conviction and commitment from the heart to forgive their neighbor... And from that firm conviction and commitment will come determined action to do whatever it takes. To remove that wedge between me and my neighbor or my brother. And to extend forgiveness where forgiveness is needed. Debtors forgiven by God forgive their debtors as they themselves have been forgiven. That's the crucial lesson that Jesus is teaching us here. This is how grace... This is one way grace. And indeed we can say a primary way that grace shows itself in the life of a Christian. That's especially what the catechism focuses our attention on as it explains the second half of the fifth petition. It explains our forgiving of our neighbor as the visible evidence... Of God's grace at work in us. This is an outstanding mark of the believing child of God who is living out the gospel. Is there anything closer to the heart of the gospel than the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ? That's at the heart of the gospel. And that means at the heart of the Christian life, which is the living out of that gospel, there is going to be the forgiveness of our debtors. Jesus sticks these two together. We want to pull them apart so often. But Jesus is not going to let us pull them apart. This is what God's grace does to the saved child of God. It changes. It changes the way we live. Grace must never be reduced to a theological concept. A theological concept that we talk a lot about. A theological concept and our only concern is articulating it in the most precise intellectual way. That's important, don't get me wrong. We must have a correct doctrinal understanding of grace. If we don't, we won't practice grace correctly. But it must not stay as that. Grace is not merely a theological concept. Grace is the power of God whereby he saves. And it's a transformative power that works and changes the way we live. Grace shows itself as graciousness, as a forgiving spirit toward our debtors, as a soft-hearted mercy for those who have sinned against us. That's Christ-likeness. What is more Christ-like? What is more Christ-like than being merciful to another poor sinner? That's Christ, our merciful high priest. That's what we're called to reflect. And so Jesus teaches us that God's forgiveness of our debts is the pattern that we are to look at. It is the pattern for our forgiveness of our debtors. That's part of the idea of As we forgive our debtors. We have a pattern here. And here is where there is instruction. How do we extend forgiveness? What does it look like? Christ is the pattern. God's forgiveness of us is the pattern. We will understand what forgiving one another looks like. When we look at and contemplate God's forgiveness of us. God forgave you and me graciously, didn't he? Not grudgingly, but graciously. We didn't have to extract forgiveness from his unwilling divine heart, but he freely, graciously, mercifully, out of the abundance of his own goodness, granted it to us, even though we were unworthy. That's the kind of forgiveness Jesus calls us to extend to our debtors. Easily, we want our debtors to pay. We want them to suffer for what they've done. We want them to earn our forgiveness, but that's not forgiveness patterned after God's forgiveness, is it? What if God dealt with us that way? If God dealt with us the way we often deal with each other, we would all perish. Gracious. Not because that person deserves it. But because I have been forgiven so much by the grace of God. That doesn't make our forgiving of one another baseless. No, the basis of our forgiving one another is the exact same basis as God's forgiving of us, Christ. That's why we forgive one another. Because Christ Died for us. And Christ died for that brother or that sister in the church. That's the Apostle Paul's instruction in Colossians 3 verse 13. Where he says, Forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any. Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. There's the basis. There's the basis. And there's also the seriousness of refusing to forgive. Or refusing to forgive graciously. It's saying something. About Christ. Deep down. It's despising the riches of Christ's mercy. It's to take on ourselves the persona of the unmerciful servant in Jesus. Well known parable in Matthew 18. Who, haven't been, who having been forgiven a gigantic debt by the king. Then goes out and finds his debtor. And grabs him by the throat. And demands. Pay that thou owest. Gracious forgiveness. Gracious. That's God's forgiveness of us. That's the pattern for our forgiveness of one another. And that gracious forgiveness is then abundant forgiveness. Is God stingy with his forgiveness toward us? Does he forgive as little as possible? Does he hang on to our sins as much as he can because he doesn't want to give them up or he doesn't want to give up wrath towards us? Of course not. Isaiah 55 verse 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. In our dealings with our debtors, we're not to be stingy with forgiveness. Sometimes we want to be stingy. We've been offended. And we don't want to give that up. We want to hang on to it. And we'll give some forgiveness, but as little as possible. That's not patterned after God's forgiveness of us. Who is not stingy, but abundantly pardoned. That's what comes to us from the cross. A tidal wave of divine mercy. A tidal wave with the power of a tsunami that sweeps away everything in its path. But this tidal wave isn't destructive. It's healing. The abundant pardon of God. A tidal wave of His mercy that crashes upon us and drives away our sin and guilt. That's God's forgiveness. And that's the pattern. For our forgiveness of one another. Gracious, abundant, repeated forgiveness. God forgives us repeatedly. We saw over the past couple weeks how often we sin. We sin against God daily. Daily we incur guilt to ourselves. We add to our debt. We commit that same sin over and over and over again. And yet, we never get to the point where God says, I've had it. I'm done with you. That's the last time I'm forgiving that sin. Perish. There's no limit. There's no limit to his forgiveness. The goodness that flows from him is never exhausted. That tidal wave of mercy never subsides. That's God's forgiveness. And that's the pattern for our forgiveness. Sometimes living in relationships, in the church, in family, we don't want to forgive again. I'll forgive that once. But you fall again. Is that how God deals with us? If it were, we'd perish. How do we deal? Each other. Jesus emphasizes repeated forgiveness in Luke 17, verse 4. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Jesus' point there to Peter is there's not a cap on the number of times you forgive your brother or your neighbor, patterned after God's forgiveness. Limitless. But now that leads to a very important point, one that arises out of Luke 17, verse 4. Notice what Jesus said Seven times in a day, he turns again unto thee, saying, I repent. Thou shalt forgive him. We forgive our debtors in the way of confession of sin and repentance. And here too, Our forgiveness of one another is patterned after God's dealing with us. We've seen that over the course of the past couple sermons. How God's daily speaking of the word of forgiveness to us. Comes in the way of repentance. Not because man is first. Not because there's a condition. But because this is how God works. God makes us spiritually receptive to his word of forgiveness by first humbling us and causing us to see our sins. The man who denies that he has debts is not going to pray for forgiveness, will not receive a word of forgiveness. The way God works is he works sovereignly, powerfully, by his grace in our hearts to move us to repentance, to bring us to our knees so that we see our need and we cry out to him for forgiveness And he freely and graciously, for Christ's sake, pardons, speaking to us through the gospel. I forgive your sins. I don't hold them against you. And he knits that word into our hearts. He applies it to us by his spirit. So that it is in the way of that God-worked repentance that we experience that daily application of forgiveness through the gospel. Our forgiveness of one another is patterned after that too. There's a mistaken notion out in the world that the Christian view of forgiveness means nobody has to repent. Nobody has to acknowledge their sin. You're just called to forgive. And that's not the case. When we're dealing with our debtors, they must be brought to see their sin and to humbly acknowledge it. And then we speak the word of forgiveness to them. And if we are a debtor to someone else, we must not think that I can just go to the one that I sinned against and say, forgive me, forgive me, you have to. No, we must humble ourselves and confess our sin and acknowledge our wrongdoing. It's in the way of repentance that that offense is removed and the word of forgiveness spoken. Jesus makes that clear again in Luke 17. The verse right before the one we read, verse 3. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. There must be genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. But now, recognize. When your debtor humbly confesses sin genuinely repents, there's a sorrowful turning from that sin and a seeking of remission. When our debtor genuinely confesses sin, we must forgive. Jesus commands, forgive. There is no room here for harboring a vengeful spirit. There is no room here for holding that sin over their head. We must forgive. We're fellow servants. We're fellow servants of the king. We're all debtors. No debtor has a right to hold it over another debtor. Now, another important clarification we must see is that forgiveness of sins does not mean the removal of all consequences for sin. Sin has consequences, and some grave sins have grave consequences. And even after forgiveness, the forgiven debtor must accept the consequences of his sin. We mustn't see forgiveness as a get out of consequences free card. It's not. In fact, one of the ways that genuine repentance is demonstrated is by the acceptance of the consequences of sin. So for example, in marriage, perhaps the wife Discovers that her husband has been lying to her over and over about where he has been on certain nights of the week. And that sin has led to a breakdown of trust. The husband, by the grace of God, confesses that sin. He is genuinely sorry for it. And his wife forgives him in the spirit of the Word of God. But now, what follows? They've been reconciled. Confession has been made, that's genuine. Forgiveness has been extended, and yet there are consequences. There's that broken trust that must be rebuilt. And that husband must demonstrate the genuineness of his repentance by being trustworthy. There are consequences that are still to follow. Certain accountability measures perhaps, need to be put in place. And part of the way that that man demonstrates his true sorrow for sin is that he willingly accepts those consequences. Forgiveness may not be used as a get-out-of-consequences-free card. Forgiveness removes the guilt. Forgiveness leads to a reconciliation of estranged brethren and a restoration of their relationship. But that doesn't mean that the consequences immediately go away. And so that's forgiveness, patterned after God's forgiveness of us. That's our calling, according to the fifth petition. But now more briefly, let's move to see the seriousness of this. The second part of the fifth petition is a serious matter. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, Jesus impresses that seriousness upon us, and we need it to be impressed upon us. We are prone to try to wiggle out from under the second half of the petition. We are prone to pray the first half, but leave off the second half. And Jesus will not let us do that. He puts them together. They must be prayed in the same breath. As we pray, forgive us our debts. We must be living out the second part. Forgiving our debtors. So there are two points of seriousness that I want to bring out. The first is this. You can't pray the first part. If you're not living the second part. To put it another way, you cannot sincerely ask God for forgiveness if at the same time you are unwilling to forgive your debtors or harboring an unforgiving spirit towards your brother. It should be clear why. God sees the heart, God sees the heart. We looked at the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. And we saw that that impenitent Pharisee could not pray the fifth petition. Because he did not acknowledge his sin. He did not admit that he had debts. And it's similar here. If we are impenitently living with an unforgiving spirit towards our brother or our sister, we cannot sincerely ask God for the forgiveness of our sins. We don't really mean it. And it's an affront to God when we ask of Him something we refuse to give to others. When we ask of Him the forgiveness of Of our giant debts. And yet we will not forgive what is by comparison the small debt of our neighbor. The man who holds sin against his brother and refuses to forgive him. That man offends God with his prayer. For few things are more offensive to God than pleading for mercy while being merciless. To a fellow sinner. So the application. Is let's see the seriousness. And let the seriousness. Move us not to try to divide the two parts of the petition in our lives. So that we go through our life. Praying the first part. But letting the second part slip. Jesus will not let us leave the neighbor out. Of the fifth petition. He will not let us leave the neighbor out. Jesus brings the neighbor, brings the brother into the fifth petition and requires of us that in the same breath as we ask for the forgiveness of our sins, we can honestly say, sincerely, from the heart, as I forgive my debtors. And so we need to examine our hearts, tend to our hearts, and look for whatever areas in our lives there may be An unforgiving spirit. We must ask the Lord for his grace. To soften that part of our heart. And ask the Lord for his forgiveness. For our unforgiveness. Now the second. The second element of seriousness here. Jesus indicates the seriousness by teaching us that God will chasten the unforgiving saint. This is Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. God will chasten the saint who harbors an unforgiving spirit. And the particular way that God will chasten that saint is by withholding from him a sense of his own forgiveness. That's what Jesus is clearly teaching in verses 14 and 15. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses... Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Jesus isn't teaching here that forgiveness of our debtor is a condition for God's forgiveness of us. Jesus is not saying that God's forgiveness depends on our forgiving the brother. We've demonstrated already that forgiveness of sins, God's forgiveness of us, is a sovereign, unconditional blessing of salvation. But now, Jesus says these things in Matthew 6 verse 14, not so that we can exercise our ingenuity in explaining them away or twisting the text, but so that we may submit to the clear teaching of Jesus here. And his words are clear. If ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. That's serious. What does it mean? Here is another place where it is so crucial to remember the definition of repentance we have been operating with. I'm sorry, the definition of forgiveness. We must remember the definition of forgiveness we've been operating with. What forgiveness is here in the fifth petition. We've distinguished this forgiveness from atonement From decisive reconciliation, from objective justification, and we must do the same here. Jesus is not saying, if you don't forgive your brother, God will not justify you. He's not saying, if you fail to forgive your brother, you forfeit your state of justification, you lose your adoption, you lose your sonship or your daughterhood. No, Jesus is talking about forgiveness as we have defined it. God's gracious word in the gospel applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit in which he declares, I don't hold your sins against you. It's that daily application of the blessing Christ has earned for us on the cross, which is ours and can never be taken from us, but which we need applied every day. Jesus' point is, if you don't forgive your brother, If you harbor an unforgiving spirit, you make yourself spiritually unreceptive to the application of that blessing day by day. And God will chasten. He will chasten by withholding the sense of his favor, the sense of his daily forgiveness, so that your conscience becomes smitten, your peace diminishes, your joy dries up. As you live with that unforgiving spirit toward your brother. And that's God's wise fatherly way. He chastens us by withholding from us what we refuse to give to the brother. Doesn't mean we lose our justification. Doesn't mean we lose our salvation. It's God dealing with us as a father. And withholding from us the sense. That forgiveness which we need day by day. And he does that in order to drive us to repentance. To make us see the error of our unforgiving spirit. So that by his grace we repent and we turn. And in the way of that sorrowful turning, find his abundant pardon. There's the seriousness. The unforgiving will find that God chastens them. With the removal, the sense of his favor. And that's a miserable place to be. And so a concluding application for the second point. Beloved, do you harbor an unforgiving spirit towards someone? In your family? In the congregation? Or have you accepted being estranged from a brother or a sister? And that estrangement, that division has become the new norm. So that there's coldness, there's dislike, there's a grudge. There's avoidance. Jesus says, you may not accept that as the new norm. You may not leave your relationship in disarray. Because that new norm is fundamentally contrary to the heart of the gospel. That new norm turns part of your life into a contradiction of the gospel of grace. The gospel of God's forgiving grace upon us is a transformative gospel that makes us a merciful and forgiving people. And the unforgiving and the unmerciful make themselves a living contradiction of the gospel. That's the seriousness. And that seriousness ought to drive us to take seriously the word of Jesus Christ and forgive our debtors as we have been forgiven. It's a word that pricks, pricks my heart. I trust it pricks yours. We find a lack of forgiveness, a lack of mercy in us, don't we? That's part of that depravity that yet cleaves to us. And here's where a word of comfort is necessary. God is not like us. What a comfort. God is not like us. He's not grudging. He's not harsh. He's not cold. He's not proud. He's not self-righteous. God is not like us. And out of the infinite depths of His mercy, He forgives our sins and He forgives our lack of forgiveness. The tidal wave of His mercy is powerful enough and sufficient to wash away our lack of mercy toward one another. God gave Christ to die for our sins. And His blood covers even this our lack of mercy towards our brother, our unforgiving spirits. Let the wonder of God's mercy for us then move us to gratitude and let that gratitude take shape, take the shape of a forgiving spirit. With the time that we have remaining, we have to address the practice of it. How do we put the principle of the second half of the fifth petition into practice? And here I want to briefly go through three points. Three main points. Three main parts of how we address and deal with sin. How we deal with our debtors. And the first, personal humility. Personal humility. The starting point is humbly acknowledging myself to be the poor sinner that the catechism and the Bible say I am. That's where we have to start. And so often, the resolving of sin and debt, the train goes off the tracks because we don't start here. We start by pointing the finger at the other. and The starting point is not there. The starting point is personal humility the starting point is recognizing I too am a poor sinner, not just my debtor. That doesn't deny the fact that my debtor has wounded me, that he's done something wrong to me. It doesn't even deny the fact that my debtor may share the, or have the lion's share of the blame. Nonetheless, I am a poor sinner too. And because I am a poor sinner, the only way I can approach my debtor is with humility. So easily we bring our own pride and self-righteousness into the resolution of our conflicts. We come with the finger pointed at the other. We lift ourselves up over our debtors as if we are better, more righteous, more spiritual than our debtor. And we forget that I, I am chief of sinners. That confession of Paul, which is our confession, must be the starting point of dealing with our debtors. I must confess to myself and really mean it. I am chief of sinners. And then go to my debtor who is also chief of sinners. And you see how that's the starting point? When two or three or however many all acknowledge that they are chief of sinners, there's no room for pride. There's all the room in the world for mercy. How can a chief of sinners hold it over another chief of sinners? How can a chief of sinners refuse to extend forgiveness to another chief of sinners when we are humble and acknowledge our own sinfulness? Then we are in the spiritual posture to deal with our debtors. It must begin there. Humility is the only foundation upon which reconciliation can be built. But from that humility, we come to the second step, approaching our debtor mercifully. Approaching, going to our debtor mercifully. Or if our debtor comes to us, receiving him in mercy. Or if we are the debtor, going to the one that we are indebted to, the one that we have sinned against, going to them humbly. The point is, approach, go to them. Approach quickly, don't wait, don't let the matter sit unresolved. Here's another area, or another place, where the whole process can be short-circuited. When we let that distance become the new norm, we let that coldness become the new norm. And it becomes so awkward, we don't want to deal with it. No, go. So Jesus says in Matthew 5 verses 23 through 24. Go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother. Go. And Jesus doesn't make a distinction between debtor. And the one who that debtor is indebted to. He says go to both. Both of you go. Both of you go. It's a mutual responsibility. And here God's forgiveness is the pattern too. Did God wait for us to come to him? Did God wait for us? Well. They sinned against me, so I'm going to do nothing until they come to me. Of course not. We never would go to him. But God, God went. He went by sending Jesus Christ for us. God acted first. And if our forgiveness and our resolving of debts is to be patterned after God's forgiveness of us, then the calling comes to all involved. Go, go. Approach your debtor. And having approached your debtor, or the person you are indebted to, to, address the matter with him, explain your desire humbly to work through the sin that divides you. You have to talk about the sin. Jesus emphasizes in Luke 17 verse 3, where sin has been committed, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. Now that rebuke isn't castigating him, it's not throwing a fit, it's not raging at him, but with the humility of a chief sinner explaining the wrong that was done and the hurt that is felt. Listening, listening to each other. And that then leads to a mutual confession of sin. Sometimes one party alone has committed sin, but that's rarely the case. Most often when there is debt, offense between brothers or sisters both share the blame. And so James 5 verse 16 says, confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. Don't confess your debtor's fault. That's not where you start, confessing their fault, but confessing your own. And you see here how that humble approach gets you so far down the path. When when two come together Seeking first to confess their own faults. You're halfway there. From mutual confession comes the extension of forgiveness. Really everything that we've talked about so far is comprehended in the second half of the fifth petition under forgiveness. This is how you get to that point where you can extend forgiveness to each other. Personal humility approaching one another Mutual confession of sin, and then mutual extension of forgiveness to each other. And that true forgiveness implies that you don't hold the sin against the other person anymore. You don't view them in light of that sin. That's what forgiveness does. It puts the sin behind you. It says, it's finished. That's not going to be how I view you anymore. That's God's forgiveness. He doesn't keep holding our sins over our head, but he casts them into the depths of the sea. He doesn't view us in light of them. Genuine forgiveness says, I forget your sin. I'm not going to bring it up again. I'm not going to use it against you. It's not a club that I'm going to keep in my back pocket so that when I need leverage against you, I can pull it out and hit you over the head with it. I forget. That doesn't mean the memory is gone. That's impossible. But in the Bible, forgetting sin means putting it out of your mind. That's what God does. He he remembers our sin, of course. That knowledge is never going to vanish from his divine mind. But he puts it out of his mind. He doesn't dwell upon it. And that's forgiveness. When we forgive the brother, we don't dwell upon their sin. The matter is finished. We put it out of our mind. And we don't bring it back later to use it against them. Genuine forgiveness means We regard the matter as finished. And we will exert ourselves to not allow this matter to stand in the way of our fellowship going forward. We're reconciled. That's the aim of mutual confession of sin and forgiveness. Is to achieve reconciliation and the restoration of a relationship. That's what mercy does. Mercy heals. Nothing else heals but mercy. Merciful forgiveness for one another. That's what God's grace has done for us. Now of course, it's not necessarily automatic as we've talked about before. Sometimes there's consequences for sin. And those consequences have to take their course. Sometimes hurt is deep. And there's time that's needed to fully heal. But the point is, when we extend forgiveness, we promise to make a determined effort not to let the forgiven sin stand between us anymore. And if you know how much you've been forgiven by God. You're going to put the effort into it. To lay the matter aside. and To not let it stand in the way of fellowship. That's the practice. To summarize it all up. The practice that Jesus teaches us. Personal humility towards one another. Approaching one another. Our debtors. Or the one we're indebted to. Mutual confession of sin. Mutual extension of forgiveness. In this, the beauty of grace becomes visible. Goes back to where the Catechism started for Christ's sake. That's why, for Christ's sake, Christ who is the Prince of Peace. Christ who made peace by the blood of the cross, Christ who gives us the most precious peace, the peace from which all peace flows, peace with God. That peace with God brings peace with the neighbor. And that takes away that takes away the right of any of us to say this is impossible. It's possible in Christ. No one can say no. This is the practice of gospel living. It's hard on the flesh, yes. It's hard on the flesh, but it is simple. It's Christ-like. Beloved, let us take this word of God into our hearts. Let us learn the principle of the second half of the fifth petition. And let us put it into practice in our homes, in our church, in all of our relationships. That as children of the Prince of Peace, we may be peacemakers who forgive one another as Christ forgave us. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we pray that thou wilt hide the instruction of the fifth commandment in our hearts. We thank thee for thy gracious forgiveness of us, full and free. Grant by thy spirit that our apprehension of that grace to us may make us a gracious people who forgive our debtors graciously. We confess, Father, that too often we pray the first part and leave off the second part. Use thy word to guide us to pray the first part, and to practice the second part. This all we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.